You would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter number one. John's Gospel, chapter number one. We're going to continue looking at John 1, where we began last week. In fact, we'll read several of the same verses again this morning. But I, I want us to focus our attention this morning and our reading on the example of John the Baptist. Here's what you'll discover in each of the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. And the New Testament speaks of the incarnation of God's only begotten Son, the second part of the Trinity, when God came down. The, the telling of Christ's birth is always intermingled with the stories of those early witnesses to the gospel. In the case of Matthew, it's a, a virgin maiden and her somewhat suspicious groom-to-be. It's Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. It's even shepherds watching over their flocks by night who herald the message of Christ's coming, who understand the significance of what this event means in human history, God having come down, our Emmanuel, God with us. In the Gospel of John, we have the example of John the Baptist bearing witness to the significance of this event, the coming of Christ, and what it means for us as mankind. Later in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he declares boldly, Behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It may be a Gospel writer's way of emphasizing the incredible role, the critical role, that evangelism that the herald has within the makeup of the kingdom, even from the outset of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. In every gospel account where the coming of Christ is described, there is at the same time wed with that the story of those who understood the significance of that event and herald the message to those around that the world would see and cherish and treasure what God had done for us in the sending forth of his only son. Here in John's gospel specifically, it's John the Baptist's story who's told, intermixed with the telling of Christ's coming, of Christ's birth, of the significance of this event, and John's faithfulness in declaring the message of Jesus as his forerunner, as the trailblazer for the only begotten Son of God. I want us to press on this morning a little bit the critical importance of evangelism in our personal lives. And I want us to glean from the example that John sets forth for us in the passage. I will stress later how silly I think it is that we need to talk about the need for evangelism within Christian circles. I want you to see in the time that we have together that this is not just that telling other people about who Jesus is and what he has done for us is not just something that we do. It's a, it's a part of who we are. It's in our DNA as Christ's followers. It's a part of the fabric of, of what we are and who we are as a church, not just the local church, but the church, the universal church. So as we look at John, as we read the passage together, even in this initial reading, I want you to ask of the text what we stand to learn. What can we glean from John's example that might be applied in our personal lives that we would be more faithful witnesses to the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ? If you found your way to John 1, I want to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 28. John the Apostle records under the inspiration of God's Spirit, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in Him, and that life was the light of men. 
That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him. Yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't refuse to answer, but declared, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. More often than not, we ought to be quite leery of making examples out of biblical characters other than Jesus. Most of them are thoroughly flawed and a great deal of what the text has to say about them is to emphasize their great flaws and the grace of God in his pleasure to use them the way that he does. But here in John 1, we have a superb example of how we are to proceed as followers of Christ, having been called upon to bear a faithful witness to the goodness of the Father in sending forth his Son in absolute perfection, that he would live the life that we should have lived, that he would die the death that we deserve to die, that he'd be raised again the third day to grant us the grace that we have never and will never deserve. John provides for us an example of a faithful witness that we might do well to pattern our faithful witness after. I want you to look verse, uh, first at verses 6 through 9. We read these verses last Sunday together, but didn't spend a great deal of time with them. This is our introduction to John in John chapter 1, John the Baptist here. The Bible says there was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
It is clear from the outset of John's ministry, even in our introduction to John the Baptist, that the focus of John's life was to be a witness to the light of the gospel. We dealt a little bit with the imagery of light and darkness in last week's passage. Constantly in the New Testament, you have this contrast between light and darkness, day and night. The Bible describes followers of Christ as being people of the day, no longer people of the night. John says in the epistle of 1 John that we are to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light and therefore have no fellowship with darkness. You understand the imagery. It's popular even in the culture. In the passage that we studied last week together, the Bible said that spiritual life was in Jesus. In fact, that was one of the points we drew from the text that we studied together, that Jesus is the only source of true spiritual life. And when that spiritual life manifests or expresses itself, it does so in the form of light, John seems to indicate. And that light, the Bible says, was the light of men. Now, John the Baptist is introduced to us as one who comes to bear witness to the light. That is, to hold forth for mankind the promise that there is life and there is light in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in the days leading up to the earthly ministry of Jesus, the message of John was, There is one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop and to tie. He is the source of all spiritual life and light. He merely came as a witness. Even what we know of him now, and you don't have to be a student of the Bible to know something of John the Baptist, to have some framework of understanding for this character and his role within redemptive history. He came as a witness. The entire focus of his life was to point other people to Jesus. In fact, if you'll look down at our passage in verse 7, the Bible says again, He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all, all might believe through him. It seems fairly clear that the antecedent to him here is not Jesus, it's John the Baptist. In other words, it seems to be an indication that John's hopeful expectation was that all would believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life through his ministry. That as he came heralding the message, that as he came declaring the message that others would hear and believe and trust on Christ, he understood himself to be an important part of what God intended to do in the world. He came as a witness. The focus of his life was to point other people to Jesus. And this, brothers and sisters, is an attribute of his character that is worthy of emulation. It's not just that there's this, this area of our life, this compartment of our life that's committed to pointing people to Jesus. It is that all of our life, whether at work, at school, or at play, is to be focused on pointing other people to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be a faithful witness in our life. Now, in this congregation of people, there are those of you who are new to the Christian faith, maybe even guests, maybe even in the past few days, you've trusted on Christ as the Lord of your life, and you're a brand new believer. And the idea of our responsibility to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth is a revolutionary concept for you. But for a great many of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and there was a season when your heart was hotter for evangelism than it is today. 
And over the course of time, you've become distracted by the things of this world. Life has gotten busy and hectic. And there have been all sorts of limitations that have been put on our movement in the past year with COVID and isolation and quarantine. And the challenges have just mounted up. And you've all but forgotten about the task, the primary task to which God has called us as followers of Jesus to bear witness to those around you. May we be reminded, re-energized, recharged, renewed, revived in our efforts to take the gospel across the street and around the world. Consider for a moment what the faithful witness does. One of the greatest hindrances or discouragements in evangelism is the feeling that we are not adequately equipped to be evangelists or to bear witness to what Jesus has done in our life. We're not theologians. We're not New Testament scholars. Perhaps we're limited in some other area. One of the great tactics of Satan as you engage in conversation about the gospel is that we often get baited into areas where we enjoy no expertise. When what Jesus has called us to as a faithful witness is to major on what we know the best. Specifically, what God has done in our experience, what we know and understand of the scripture and its bearing on our life personally. Think of the example of the man born blind in the gospel of John chapter number nine. There's a man born blind and Jesus encounters him there in the city of Jerusalem, puts a little mud together in a paste and dabs it to his eyes and a man born blind sees. This creates quite a stir in the city of Jerusalem. The religious authorities have not authorized Jesus to do what he's done. And so there's a great deal of conflict about this man being granted his sight. And they call together sort of a kangaroo court and they're, they're back and forth about who Jesus is and they've declared him a sinner and they see him as out of step with what's acceptable in Israelite religion. And then they call the man born blind. And they say, tell us of this one who granted you your sight. Surely he's a sinner. And the man admits, I, I'm, I'm not up to speed on all of what you're debating here in the current court hearing, but this much I know. I was blind and now I see. All we're truly called to do as faithful witnesses is to bear witness to what we know to be the case, to give a testimony of what Christ has done in us. Now, that doesn't need to be divorced from the Scripture. Certainly, certainly that needs to be reflective of what the Bible says concerning the gospel. Our conversion experience, apart from biblical consistency, is an invalid conversion experience. But all we have been called to do is to testify to what Jesus has done in our experience and what by the power of the gospel he may do in the lives of those around us. The, the focus of John's entire life was to see people pointed to Jesus. And in every area of your life, this is a real possibility. Leverage your hobbies and your interests, the things that you're talented at, the things that you're uniquely gifted at. Leverage all of your life to point people to Jesus. A faithful witness speaking with a glad heart of what God has done in your life. That's clear of John and the introduction to his life in verses 6 through 9, but that's not all our passage says of John the Baptist. Look down to verse number 15. One of the things before we read this rather lengthy part of John chapter 1, verses 15 through 27, one of the things about John's ministry, everywhere you see John preaching, he makes it abundantly clear that the ministry is not about John the Baptist. The ministry is about Jesus. 
it seems clear that John chooses to focus on the superiority of Jesus over himself and over all things. Notice this in these verses, verse 15. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Later, he'll say, he's after me. He was before me, and he's after me. He's eternally existent. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. John says, the ministry of John the Baptist is not about John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist is all about Jesus. Later in John 1, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is not a minister who boasts in his own glory, a minister who wishes to see himself thrust to the forefront of the nation's attention. This is one who would choose the servant's way, who would choose the towel and the basin, who would choose ministering in obscurity. He's out beyond the Jordan. The Bible says in verse 28, this all happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, not in the center of all things Israelite, in the city of Jerusalem. He would choose obscurity for himself, that the name of Jesus would be made famous. Look down to verse number 19. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. One of the many problems that I have with so-called celebrity Christianity in America and so many celebrity pastors or celebrity ministers or celebrity life coaches as the jargon goes these days is that you can quickly get the impression that it's the messenger that we're looking for that he is perhaps this language is somewhat strong but it's certainly implied in many ministries the messiah that we've been waiting for that somehow by his articulate presentation by his power of persuasion he has the ability to, the ability to confer what we have so desperately needed john makes no bones about it i am not the one you've been looking for what you're looking for is jesus brothers and sisters i just want you to know that pastors and ministers will fail you they'll make mistakes and break your heart but jesus will never let you down John is abundantly clear in his ministry that his ministry is about Jesus and not John the Baptist. I've been around long enough that you know a little bit about how God saved me and sort of the radical nature of that. And I do believe that's true. I think God radically saved me. He radically changed my life in a relatively brief window of time. God took the old man, put him to death, and, and raised a new man in his place. And I've truly never been the same. The early speaking opportunities that I had largely revolved around talking about who I had been and now who I was. This contrast in behavior and, and lifestyle and life in general. Come and tell us about this change that took place. And it became clear fairly quickly that there was, for a lot of people, a lot more interest in the crazy stuff that happened way back then than there was in the power of the gospel that so drastically changed my life. And for a long time as a preacher, I just said, I'm not going to go there and talk testimony stuff because that's where all the focus winds up being. The focus gets on, on that stuff. And, and here's how prideful we are. I could act really spiritual about that if I wanted to, but, but the pride in me, the sinner in me was drawn to that. There's a, there's a pull to that, and you can begin to focus on that more so than the power of the gospel that so drastically changed our life. Be careful 
that as you bear witness to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is always the hero of the story. I I hear some testimonies, and I, I wonder who the hero really is. But there's no mistaking in John's example, Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the hero. And if you have a biblical testimony of God saving your soul from sin, Jesus is the hero of your story as well. Our testimony is not one of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, growing up, wising up, maturing up, and and doing something more with our life than we might have otherwise done. Our testimony is how we were dead in sins and trespasses, and God has, by the power of the gospel, made us alive in Christ Jesus. John said, I am not the Messiah. And it would be a helpful reminder for us sometimes to note that we are not either. In verse 21, they ask, what then? Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Who are you then? They ask. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And John said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet had said. Later in verse 26, when asked about baptism, John said, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. You look at every passage that focuses on the ministry of John the Baptist and what is crystal clear, the theological content of every verse focused on his ministry is the superiority of Jesus over himself and the superiority of Jesus over all things. And I think this is key. I, 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 think, I think this is the secret sauce of the sermon this morning, frankly. You're going to have a really difficult time celebrating Jesus in casual conversation if you are enamored with yourself. John always regards Jesus better than him. His interest is in Christ, not his own well-being. Even the way he clothes himself The deprivation that John bears with, he eats locust and wild honey. He is clothed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. He lives out in the wilderness. This is not a comfortable lifestyle. Everything about John's ministry says selfless sacrifice to see much made of Jesus. He focuses on the superiority of Jesus over him in all things. When Jesus is truly the treasure of our heart, we will speak gladly and we will speak freely of who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. Those clumsy introductions, those awkward conversations become joyous and glad-hearted and marked by great big grins because we're excited about what Jesus has done in our life and what he stands to do in the lives of others. Even when there's rejection on the other side of the conversation, we're able to walk away with gladness, noting that we've had occasion to reflect on the goodness of God toward us in Jesus Christ. This is the answer. I really do think it is among the silliest things in all the world that we have to preach and coach for and encourage evangelism within Christian circles. It oughtn't be that way. We ought to be able to say with the apostles, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a story of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism within America. And he came to the realization that he was lost, that he was unconverted. In those days, it was relatively common for a preacher to be lost, to be unregenerate. You had to have the certificate, the education, but you didn't necessarily have to have the new birth. And many existed as ministers, as pastors, as preachers, without the experience of 
the new birth. Within that system, it seemed sensible to them. Wesley came to the realization that he was lost and that we are justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He began to read and understand the scriptures in a new light. He began to grapple with and understand and be gripped by the power of the gospel. But he knew that there was something that remained unsettled in his soul. He went to the bishop and he says, I'm preaching faith, but I don't have faith. I don't know what to do. And the bishop responded with such wisdom. He said, preach faith until you have it. And when you have it, you will surely preach it. Now, I don't advise preaching faith unless you have it. I do advise having it. But but I would encourage you to, to hold off on ministry until after you have it. But there's such wisdom in the latter part of what the bishop encouraged. When you have faith, you will surely preach it. You cannot be touched by the power of the gospel and be unaffected, unfazed, unchanged by that account encounter. We ought not be able but to speak of what Christ has done in us. And the harsh reality is we speak most often and we speak most freely about the things that we cherish the most. There's a reason why you know the name of the third string tight end on your favorite football team and haven't shared the gospel in the last month. The reason is you're more passionate about your favorite football team than you are the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only repentance and faith can change that. Only turning away from your fixation on the things of this life can really turn your heart in that way. If if sharing the gospel is something that you're always trotting through with such difficulty in such a burdensome way, you'll not find the joy and the delight that might otherwise be had in this endeavor. We get to tell other people about everlasting life. We are bearers of the best news that has ever been told. Think of what Christ has done in your life. That power, that transformation, that hope, that grace is available to the worst of the worst. The least of these may know what we know in the gospel. And we get to go tell them. John has no issues with evangelism. Because his focus is on the superiority of Jesus over himself and over all things. The thing that most keeps us from sharing the gospel is idolatry. We idolize, we fixate on the things of this world. That becomes the focus of our attention. I've said throughout the years, if you really want to weigh a good gauge for where your heart is, check out your checkbook. It'll say a lot about where your heart is. But, but perhaps just as effective, maybe more so. Con- consider those issues, those areas of your life, the things that you spend the bulk of your time in conversation about. That's where your treasure is. That's what you value the most. When Jesus becomes the treasure of our heart, when he becomes the focus of our every day, When he becomes the center of our life, the preeminent one over all things the world could afford, it becomes a smooth, easy, natural, glad-hearted thing to gush about the goodness of Jesus Christ. The most faithful witnesses that I have known in my Christian experience have been the happiest people I've ever encountered. Going about their day in the glow of the greatness of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. Is Jesus the treasure of your life? Is that reflected in the conversations that you have as you share with others about how good, indeed good, 
God has been. This, this is not to say that John was not a great man. Understand, Jesus said, born to woman, there's not been a greater man than John the Baptist. And yet consistently he sees himself as less than the Lord Jesus Christ because he is less than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great thing to know the greatest of all in our King Jesus. There's a third thing that I want you to see before our time is done. Look back to verse number 23. Here, John is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30. And he's doing so in the context of responding to these ambassadors for the Pharisees who want to know who he is. He says here, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet had said. He understands his place in redemptive history. In the same way the Old Testament promises that Jesus is coming, the Old Testament promised on some level that John the Baptist was coming. One would come in the spirit of Elijah, who would be the forerunner to, the trailblazer for the Messiah. John understands his place in redemptive history. But there is a meekness, there is a humility, even about the way John responds to this question. He sees himself as a mere voice. I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Not the voice, but a voice. One among many voices crying out in the wilderness. There were others, even at the time of John the Baptist, who were bearing witness to the light, who were speaking of the signs and symbols of the day, the fulfillment of Scripture, what they understood to be coming about in the birth of Jesus Christ. He said, I am a voice. He regards himself as a mere voice. Now, this is... Subtly different from the point we've just made, as John noted the superiority of Jesus over all things. I think there are times, I know this has been an error for me, and I suspect this is true of others as well, especially young people. We get excited about Jesus. We get excited about what God has done for us. We get excited about the gospel. Young people are not the only people. Old people can have this issue as well. We get so fired up and so excited, we want to see a moment or a movement happen. And, and we, because we're American and we're Western and we've got this mentality, this microwave thing and everything happens big and big is better. We've got this idea that the moment or the movement is where it's at. Like in order to affect change for the world to be uh, revolutionized, for the world to be on its head, for the kingdom to do all it intends to do within our society, we need a movement or we need a moment. And the problem with movements and moments is that they provide opportunity for man to receive the glory. And seldom does God work in a way that accommodates or makes an opportunity for mankind to receive any glory. More often than not, it's the selfless, sacrificial, anonymous acts of service through which God works to do his greatest deeds. S stop looking for the moment and the movement, and be faithful in the little opportunities that God has entrusted to you. We look at the book of Acts, and we see 3,000 come to faith, and then we see 5,000 come to faith at Solomon's portico, and we think that's what it's got to look like. And what we don't understand is that what's unfolding in those passages is not like the 20th century crusade. This is not Peter standing at the head of a crowd of people and preaching over them by speaker and then a response during an invitation. This is the disciples scattered out across the multitude, proclaiming essentially the same message in smaller groups, communicating their need for grace through Jesus 
and God moving through the lesser conversations that are having in that multitude of people. And then our impressions about those passages have been reinforced by our experience in the 20th century as we watch crusades unfold and hundreds and thousands of people responding in an instant. And we make the assumption that this is how God works and moves in great ways. This is how revival and awakening happen. And I want you to know that those examples are the exceptions to the rule within Christian history. Most of the great works of God, most of the great movements of God are not happening from a pulpit before a gathering of hundreds or thousands of people. But kneecap to kneecap, in coffee shop conversations, in workplace conversations, in university conversations, around, or just around the coffee table and sharing with friends and family and others, this is the way God is most often pleased to move. But if you're always looking for the movement and the moment, you're going to miss some of the greatest opportunities at kingdom advancement, at just glowing and celebrating and bubbling over at what Jesus has done in your, in your life. More often than not, God does his greatest work through seemingly small, subtle acts of service and evangelism. You see that kind of obscurity in John the Baptist's ministry. Now, I would have you to note that although John ministers in obscurity and ultimately has his head cut off, that's not exactly the American dream. It's 2,000 years later, and we're still discussing the eternal significance of John the Baptist's life. Being successful in a kingdom sense in an eternally significant way is probably not going to match with your notions of the American dream, what your parents or even you thought was in store for your life. Minister in obscurity. Be willing to decrease in order that he might increase. Be willing to serve in unseen, unrecognized ways. Be willing to take the thankless route to see to it that others would know of what Christ has done for our salvation. This is it. This is it. This is the secret to evangelism. Not caring that we ever be recognized, noticed, or seen for our acts of service and evangelism. And never losing sight of the fact that what we have in Jesus is better than anything that this world could ever offer. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we get so fixated on celebrities who profess faith in Jesus is because it reinforces for us the possibility that we can have the American dream and everything Jesus wants us to have. And I just got to tell you, more often than not, it just doesn't jive. Jesus said, it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because there's a prohibition against rich people in heaven. It's because we have such a tendency to get fixated on the stuff of the here and now. I I really want for us to dismiss our services today with a firm resolve in each of our hearts to see to it that we treasure Jesus above all else. That we could say confidently without hypocrisy that Jesus is better than anything we know. That we love Jesus better than hunting and fishing and the outdoors. We love Jesus better than we do our favorite college or our favorite sports team, our, our favorite NFL team. We love Jesus even better than we love our children. We love Jesus better than we love our spouse. We love Jesus even better than we love our church. We love Jesus better than we do anything and everything. We love Jesus more than we do our habits, our addictions, our hang-ups. We love Jesus more than anything that this world could ever fathom. We 
love Jesus. He is the treasure of our heart. And we live to share with others how much we love our Savior and how much he loves them too. Would you commit this morning? Would you resolve with me to labor, to strive, and to strain, to rid yourself of idols, to turn your attention away from the stuff of this world, and to set your eyes on Jesus? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for your goodness toward us. God, I, I, I need this message as much as any of our people. And I, I pray with them. I, I trust, Lord. I pray that collectively we're grappling with this notion that our shortcomings are the product of our failing to acknowledge the greatness of our God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn away from the things of this life and to Christ and to see his infinite beauty and worth Help us to see him for who he is. Remind us that in our best moment, we aren't worthy to stoop and to loose the strap of his sandal. God, help us to embrace the decrease in order that he might increase. God, provide for us opportunities to gush, to glow over what Christ has done for us Make this a part of who we are. May this be uh, what we do to just share with others of the goodness of God through your son, Jesus. God, forgive us where we come short of that. Be, be pleased, Father, we pray that as we go, you'd save some. God, that as we celebrate in conversation of the goodness of Jesus, Lord, might there be some who would taste and see that indeed our God is good. God, grant a harvest of souls, we pray perhaps minus the moment and the movement. Do something that only you could receive the glory and the credit for. God, I, I pray that we'd be willing to take the towel and the basin over positions of prominence and recognition. Help us to be glad about ministering in obscurity, to go unrecognized, to see to it that others would hear and know that Christ is King. God, forgive us of our many, many shortcomings. Inside and out, we are filled with fault and sin. We're idolaters in our very hearts. So, Lord, I pray that you would work through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would set Jesus in his rightful place at the center of our life and on the throne of our hearts. May he truly have the preeminence in our life. May this be more than something we pay mere lip service to. May it be true of us that Christ is Lord and King. We ask it in the power of Jesus' name. Amen and amen.